0: What you're about to hear is from a live recording that I had with Mike Kemp, the author of The Ulysses Contract. Mike has appeared on the Rask Network before, but he is simply one of the most wonderful fountains of investment wisdom that anyone could ever hope to hear from, so he's probably going to appear on the show regularly going forward. In this conversation with Mike, we talk about The Ulysses Contract. What it actually means, why he named the book after uh, such a historical, I guess, moment in time, uh, being Ulysses, and the idea of sirens and distractions that form in investing. In this conversation, we talk about things like Benjamin Graham being the so-called father of value investing, when that may actually not be the case. Warren Buffett's investment legacy and why it may be a mistake to emulate value investing principles in the 21st century. We talk about so much more uh, throughout this conversation around stories, around investment behavior, and there's a little bit about how Mike invests, but it's mostly theoretical. If you want to learn more, I highly encourage you to pick up the book, The Ulysses Contract. Uh, Apologies for the slight, uh, I guess, unusual uh, noise when it comes to uh, this recording. I did record this live uh, with Mike. And I had hoped for better audio, but I think the conversation and the content and the, the, the principles that we talk about are still wonderful. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike Kemp, author of The Ulysses Contract. Mike, thank you for joining Good night. Um, I know there's going to be many questions that come through the chat today, but I've got plenty for you uh, myself. And one of the things that you probably, I think I did tell you this, but um, we've almost had you as a presence throughout the RASC Live a series over the past couple of months because a few times I've brought up s- sections of the book or uh, actually focused on some chapters. And one of those chapters that we uh, we focused on was this, it wasn't so much a chapter, but just part of the book, if you, if you will, a uh, small part of the book that said, you know, building wealth is like, I guess, growing a farm or nurturing your farm and creating wealth uh, can be thought of in those terms. And it's interesting because we're going to talk about history the idea of a stock market and trading wool and trading lamb and or sheep and these types of things. Um, it's really relevant to the lexicon that we have for describing the share market. So with that said, I have a very simple question of, can you just talk us through this analogy of investing successfully being like a farm? yeah
1: you know, i think I think a lot of investors, <clears throat> nearly all investors think upon the stock market as the, in the wrong sense that they are going to succeed by just picking winner after winner after winner and, you know, trading and, you know, buying high and selling low. I I think of the stock market as a totally different way. In fact, the the way the stock market was first thought of when it was uh, the first tradable stocks were created in 1602, it's about businesses trying to raise capital. And as a as a shareholder or a business owner. So I think of, I like to think of a farm that you build. Um, you own a farm, which I would say is a portfolio of stocks. They deliver you an income. Now, a, a farmer doesn't think about buy, selling his farm all the time. He doesn't get scared because some economist or, you know, comes on TV or weatherman comes on TV and says, you know, it's gonna it's not gonna rain for a month, so he wants to sell his farm. He doesn't get scared. He doesn't constantly think about the price that his farm would get if he sold it. And I think it's there's great benefit in thinking of your stock portfolio that way, that that it's there as a group of companies that are providing you with an income that you can live off. And I like to think of my stock portfolio as a farm delivering me income. That's it.
0: Mm-hmm. And in some senses, like I, I think about this a lot um, as someone who wants to own a farm, as you know, Mike, I think about it if you were a trying, real to, farm. If, yeah, a real farm. If you were trying to live off your farm, you probably wouldn't have, say, corn all in one paddock and and all over the farm. You might have it in one paddock, and then you might have the sheep on the other side. So you've got something for summer, something for winter, and you can diversify in that way. And I guess the analogy keeps rolling on, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I really think it's a mind, mindset. It's a shift in a way of thinking. Uh, there's just too much focus on volatile prices. And, you know, I'm, I'm up one day and, oh, my God, I'm down the next. It's not the way farmers think about their farm, and I don't think it's the way people should think about their stock portfolios either.
0: Yeah. And it's such a lovely thing because, you know, I was chatting to Steve Sammartino. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I was chatting to Steve Sammartino, who's a futurist, uh, and he started quite a few companies and sold them. And he was saying so much of that language that we get, like things like the yield and the sustainability, which you refer to in the book, um, those ideas of like a a yield or crop yield is something that we now take to mean, you know, a dividend yield or an income yield that we extract. Mm -hmm. And it's about finding that balance, right? If we go, if we're a farmer and, Uh, putting on my farmer's hat for a moment we're a farmer and we put you know all of these chemicals into the ground to try and maximize that yield in one year probably the next year we can't plant anything there Mm -hmm. it's this idea of focusing too much on the yield and not enough on the long-term growth in I, i think what we should do for those people that haven't read the book your latest book the ulysses contract is we should talk about i guess the idea of the story of ulysses for those who aren't familiar we've covered this ground before but can you tell us about that? And then maybe we t- start to talk about some of the sirens that come off the back of that. Sure. So,
1: I mean, um, Odysseus is the main character in a, in a poem that was a Homer poem that was written a long, long time ago. Um, uh, in Italian, Odysseus is uh, Ulysses, which he's better known as. Um, he was the king of a Greek island called Ithaca, and he was returning home after the Ten Year War uh, in a boat with with his men, with the sailors on the boat. And he knew he was passing this island where sirens sing and they attract, you know, sailors onto the rocks to their destruction. Now, in order to avoid that, what Ulysses did was he made his sailors put wax in their ears, but he wanted to hear the sirens, so he asked his men to tie him to the mast minus the wax so he could hear them. So what Ulysses was doing was putting into place a plan before the event that would stop him doing something stupid when he was exposed to the seduction of the sounds. Now, I liken that to the investing, because investing is also a journey. It's a multi-decade journey. Um, We can work out what works. Excuse me. We know what works. Uh, What works is saving, investing in good assets and compounding over time. But along that journey, we get seduced. And the seduction can come in many forms uh, high returns, uh, market timing, um, prophesizers, economic forecasters who scare us into thinking the stock market's about to crash. So there are all these sirens that are seducing us along that journey and taking us away from that track of true investment success. So, What a Ulysses contract is, in the sense I write in my book, is a contract you undertake today and stick to over decades. You know you will achieve success if you stick to it and just close your ears, put your wax in ears to all the sirens. But the unfortunate thing in investing, a lot of people don't know what those sirens are. So you have to identify them first. And I identify 11 sirens in my book. And people will be surprised what they are because a lot of these are so-called tools, and I use that word in inverted commas, that people think you are going to succeed by using, you know, market timing, um, charting with a pen and paper, um, you know, listening to economic forecasts, all these things. And what I do in my book is I look at these things realistically and and evidence-based and say, well, do they work? And most of them don't. Yeah. Um, so to me, they are falsehoods that you shouldn't really chase in an effort to achieve investment success.
0: And I love that, um, I said this on the podcast that we did quite a while ago now, but um, I love that you study history basically as much as, probably more than you study the present moment because it's such a great guide to human nature and behavior and the things that we are seduced by as a result. And for some reason in my head, Mike, I had it that the stock market had only been around for 100 or 200 years, but it's actually been around a lot longer than that. I can't remember the date. I don't know if you do off the top of your head.
1: Mm, I do. The first stock that was tradable in a public sense, like stocks are traded today, was 1602, the Dutch East India Company. company. Um, And the first stock market as a building Uh, was finished in 1611. Uh, Hendrik de Keyser, who was Amsterdam's chief architect and stonemason, uh, they built an exchange solely for the purpose of trading stock uh, in 1611. Now, the US, uh, its first stock market in Philadelphia was 1790 and uh, 1792 in New York. So they really were way
0: behind, they were almost two centuries behind the Dutch. Hmm. Wow. And if you think about that, there's a lot of history um, and a lot that has changed, but, and, you know, we could say, well, you can trade online now, you've got more tools, you've got more data. Yeah, um, but one I thing that hasn't so. changed is in, for those of you that study evolution, you know that a couple hundred years isn't enough to change. You know, all our, our reptilian own- <laughs> brains. <laughs> yeah. And Look, um, I, that's what yeah, we see, right? I, I mentioned
1: this in my second book. Um, I said... I call it the human constant. I believe there's only really one constant in the stock market, and that's human behaviour. And it's unchanged. I mean, you hear me, you've heard me quote many times uh, from Confusion to Confusion, uh, which is a book written in 1688 by Joseph de la Vega, considered the first book on investing ever written. And some of the comments he makes in there about behavioural finance that aren't called behavioural finance, but they're his observations about the way people were behaving on the Amsterdam exchange. It's just mind-blowing because it's exactly what people, the mistakes that people make today. Um, So what you say is so true.
0: Mike, can you give us a sense of, so you mentioned there were, top of my head, 11 uh, sirens that you've identified in the book. Yeah, there's more, but I've identified 11 main ones here. Yeah. Can you give us maybe two of the, the sirens that are common or that you just want to simply share with us today?
1: Yeah, I, look, it, it's a bit like asking someone with 11 children who are their favourite two children <laughs> But I, one of my pet hates, if I'm going to pick a couple, one of my pet hates is economic forecasters, particularly those who take themselves too seriously. Um, it was John Kenneth Galbraith who made the comment or the quote from him that there are two types of forecasters those who don't know and those that don't know that they don't know. And, and, you know, what happens is if you think about it, Owen, most of investing, if not all, is really about the future. Now, no one has an insight into the future. No one has a crystal ball. So we're we're wandering around in sort of this darkness trying to feel our way. And that's pretty scary for most human beings. I mean, it was Alfred Coles who made the comment that people are terrified by the unknown. So humans need to fill that gap of the unknown. And if there's someone out there who sounds like they know, know, then people listen to them. And economists, particularly the confident ones, sound like they know. Where do you find the confident forecasters? On TV. Now, people don't check up on them. They make all these forecasts, but they don't check up on them. And, and I one of my favourite studies is one undertaken by uh, Philip Tetlock. He's a U.S. Uh, academic, and he collected over 27,000 predictions from two, over 280 economists over a multi-year period and checked how their predictions turned out. Um, and as he said, it was no better than chimpanzees throwing darts at a board. And in fact, the the fascinating thing was the subgroup um, that did the worst were the most confident economists. Now you might well say, how how can the most confident ones uh, be the worst? Because they believe their own story. And, And economists suffer, as we all do, from something called recency bias, we think the status quo is going to be maintained. I mean, what did Philip Lowe say when interest rates in Australia were at 0.1%? You know, they're going to keep, probably keep low for another two years till 2024. That's recency bias and we all fall from that. Economists are not exempt. So what they tend to do is to predict the same, whereas things change. So economists, I mean, I, I love that quote from the ex-chancellor of the, the, uh, the Exchequer, uh, Norman Lamont, who said of his favourite uh, economic forecaster, he is often wrong, but he's never in doubt. And, and that's that's what I so that my pet hate, hate is forecasting. I don't listen to it, I really don't. I hate to, I'm trying not to be rude to anyone, but I think it's a waste of time listening to it. Um, Another siren, and this is perhaps one of the most insidious sirens, this is a really tough one, uh, is our inner voice, ourselves. And the reason it's so tough is no one thinks they're wrong. Everyone thinks they think rationally. Um, We are our own worst judges. We're not aware of our inadequacies, um, yet we are riddled with them and we don't process information properly. Um, we're overconfident, we draw conclusions too quickly. I, I love that uh, Danny Kahneman, the uh, US psychologist, that, that phrase, YCRT, uh, what you see is all oh, there is. <clears throat> we're biased. Now, I, I think we need to be aware of all of those things, um, all our inadequacies, our human frailties. Um, and the only way you're going to do that is keeping a very open mind admitting that you are a poor processor of information and work within those limitations. One of the biggest problems I see in the stock market and people interacting with it, and then this gets back to before when you were talking about our reptilian brains, the human brain uh, thinks in a linear fashion. By that I mean, A happened, therefore B will happen. And if, if we want to change b a bit we fiddle around with a you know it's a bit like the old monetary policy Um, but stock markets aren't like that they're far more complex um we need to approach the stock market with interactive thinking you know a affects b which then affects c which feeds back and affects a which then affects z it's why the market is so difficult for people to understand We just don't have the capacity to understand it due to its complexity. But we think we do. We think we understand it, but
0: we don't. One of the, I was reminded of your quote, um, one of the quotes you put in the book, and I cannot for the life of me remember who said it. Um, When they were asked what the stock market would do, they said, quote, it will fluctuate. That
1: was JP Morgan, uh, uh, Pierpont Morgan. And (laughs) he was he died in 1913 by the way but during the course of his life he was effectively the central bank of america because andrew jackson had got rid of the central bank um he he he, he didn't believe in it j p morgan was often called upon to bail the us economy out like he did in 1907 the crash of 1907 but but j yeah i've been in the room where j p morgan was sitting uh when the bankers were he locked the bankers in the in his library and said we've got to we got to fix up the american economy the market's crashed um but the thing is uh, getting back to your comment it was basically jp morgan was being pestered by by newspaper men you know asking him his opinion on this and that and da da da. And one of them called out uh, what will the stock market do and he said Sir, it will fluctuate Basically, he was referring to the fact that he doesn't know, but it's the market's volatile and he'd be an idiot if he tried to guess. I just get back to, this gets back to economists, doesn't it? They? You, sh- you shove a microphone in an economist's face and ask him where the market's
0: going, they'll usually give you an answer. <laughs> and... Uh- it's, it's, it's really, well, I think one of the things that people would say, think when they hear you say these things, and they make a lot of sense because we've seen, and your book shows this, and that's why I think it's such a profound book, is people, you know, think they have a preconception about stock trading, like making money from trading stocks, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Um, value investing, which we'll come to them in a moment market timing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you name it, there's a flavour of it out there and you cover a lot of them like quantitative investing in your book. But it, it kind of, one of the things that people would think is like, well, what is the answer? Then if, you, if you're if you telling us what's kind of not the answer, which we'll come mm-hmm. to in a moment. Frustrates
1: yeah. people when I keep telling them that's not the answer. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, and there's a great quote for this, which we, we'll touch on later. Um, one of the things that you do talk about in the book, and this is probably the part where I zoomed in on, because I was like, this is really interesting for me, which is the the idea of value investing. And mm-hmm. I know you want to talk about this a bit, and I, I think it's worthwhile, everyone listening to this, because we think about value investing as you know buying a dollar for 50 cents, trying to find the valuation of a business. And frankly, Mike, like a lot of people that know you and know of you and read your books or seen your work in previous times, for them, you're kind of like this this educator that's been out there for a long time and through demonstrating like your wares and your ability to understand business, they see you as someone who is an expert in value investing because if I may say so myself, you did not I think you did it successfully for your communities that you touched for so long.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then I know you want to kind of talk about that because there's this whole thing at the moment of people trying to replicate Warren Buffett or, insert name, a famous value investor. Mm-hmm. And that may be one of these things where people need to not be seduced by those principles. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, my, actually, my second book on common sense, a
1: lot of it is about the history of valuation. Um, and people have a lot of misperceptions about value investing. And for those of you who... Sort of haven't had it defined too well. It's the identif- identification of stocks or companies that are that you have the the ability to buy for less than you believe they're worth. So you work out an intrinsic value, you say XYZ's worth 10 bucks, it's trading on the market for six. So you think it's going to be a great buy. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about value investing, particularly how it came about. Uh, the popular belief is that value investing kicked off about 90 about 90 odd years ago, um, when Benjamin Graham um, wrote Security Analysis in 1934, uh, and then Warren Buffett popularised that because you know Buffett was his student at Columbia University. He went and worked with Benjamin Graham at Graham-Newman in the 50s, and they were good pals before Ben Graham died in 1976. So. Value investing is associated with Ben Graham. Before Graham, there was darkness and Warren Buffett became its poster boy. So, well, obviously, Buffett today is worth $120 and he made it from investing. So everyone wants a piece of the action, right? So, but the fact is value investing didn't start with Ben Graham. It started a long, long time ago. Um, uh, he didn't come up with the, even with the mythology uh, how to how to undertake it. I love to talk about a guy called Archibald Hutchison who was a member of Parliament uh, in 1720. He uh, had a 14-year career. Uh, 1720, uh, when the South Sea Bubble, who most of you, I think, would know about the South Sea Bubble, in 1720, and Archibald Hutchison stood up in Parliament and argued the South Sea stock trading at 150 times multiple was way too high and he talked about prospective earnings um he talked about uh, pe's although they didn't use that word, that exact phrase at that time multiples uh, it was an argument about multiple he talked about capital raisings and he valued south sea stock using a discount rate in the same way that we would value stock today and by the way discounting future dividends is nothing new um, Joseph de la Vega, used to talk about, he, we talked in his book in 1688 about how he valued stock, and, and it was about prospective dividends. Um, so there's nothing new about that. Even the, even the word intrinsic value, I mean, there's an Englishman called Sir Josiah Child who in 1681 wrote a book, um, the uh, treatise concerning the East India trade, and in it he talks about intrinsic value. In the sense that we use it today, so that was 1681. This is not Ben Graham stuff. I'll tell you another farce about Ben Graham. Um, you hear, who, who came up with the phrase margin of safety? You know what I mean by margin of safety? You work out an in, well, you work out an intrinsic value. You, you know its inputs are pretty rubbery, so you take away a margin of safety to come up with your revised or or conservative intrinsic value, you look on any site, you listen to anyone about who came up with the phrase margin of safety, and I'll say Ben Graham. Google it now. Ben Graham, Ben Graham, Ben Graham. And now I'd say to you, well, if Ben Graham came up with the concept, uh, how come Charles Dow wrote about it in an article in the Wall Street Journal in June 1901. Oh, I mean, Ben Graham was seven years old at the time. So I don't think Charles Dow was ringing up Ben Graham or contacting Ben Graham to ask him about margin of safety. So I would say to you, when did value investing start? Uh, over 300 years ago. That's when it started. As I said, just Ben Graham and Warren Buffer are its poster boys.
0: But it doesn't work as well as when Buffett was using it. So I just tested it, Mike. Uh, Google says it was Ben Graham Yeah, and Google AI engine, Google Bard, also said 1934, security analysis, principles and techniques. So Ben Graham. You
1: will find the phrase in 1901, June 1901, in a Wall Street article written by Charles Dow. And He wasn't the only one. I mean, Henry Hall uh, wrote a book, How Money is Made in Security Investments, in 1906,
0: and he talks about margin of safety as well. Ben Graham was a child. So so the natural question then is, right, there are millions of people that watch the Berkshire Hathaway AGMs, if I'm not mistaken, you yourself even maybe own Berkshire Hathaway stock for a time. I did Class A's. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's a badge of honour, by the way. They're um, over half a
1: million dollars a share at the moment. That's, that's US, so, you know, seven eight dollars $800,000 Aussie a share
0: at the moment, the Class A. Did you? Okay, this is probably, uh, this is not, I'm not seeking a recommendation here, but do you still own these? No. No? The no, tr- I, I
1: sold them. Remember that crash March uh, 2020, the COVID crash? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, bought, I bought my shares at Parity but when Aussie dollar hit oh. the US. So that that was back in 2011, 12, 2011, I think.
0: Um, yeah, and during the yeah.
1: COVID crash, the Aussie dollar dropped to 55 cents against the US. And I thought, what a perfect time to sell, because I picked up you know double my money on the currency as well. Not only that, if you look at Buffett's performance, the performance of – Berkshire Hathaway over the last 15 years, he hasn't even been betting the S&P 500, so he's lost his edge. Um, it's not the company; it's living on past glories. Now, he's compounding. Now, he's worth 120 billion, but he's compounding at a rate of return much lower than he used to. When he, when he set up his partnership before he um, bought Berkshire stock. Uh, he's been chairman since 1965, but when he first set up his partnership when he stopped working with Graham Newman in 1956, he had a partnership uh, for 13 years where he sat and invested out of his bedroom um, in Omaha. He he compounded over that 13 years at a geometric rate of 30%. That That is phenomenal. It means his first partners who were with him for 13 years um uh multiplied their money basically 30 times but that um, is rates to return he doesn't achieve anymore
0: yeah well that was going to be my next question right is um so we talk about buffett and you look in his annual letter and you see that unbelievable investment return not just in the duration but also kind of double D- double the S
1: double and double S and P the since 1965. But th- that's a geometric return. Remember, it's it's used oh, to put, be
0: higher. It's four. Put the runs on the board early yeah, on. Yeah, right? put
1: the runs on the board. Now he's just compounding it. You know, S and P rates.
0: So then, then my question and the question of everyone listening and watching would be he's slowed down in recent times, but is that just because he's got hundreds of billions of dollars or is it because the game has changed? He likes to
1: say that. I mean, for many years he's said that, you know, Berkshire has become so big that he needs big companies to move the dial. As he likes to say, I have to go out hunting with an elephant gun now. He's been saying that for a long time. He's also got a lot of cash in cash, T-bills. But, the whole game of value investing has changed. What, what he, used to be a winner for him has changed. Um, he's even stated that in the Berkshire meetings. He said it was very different when he started out his career. He said it was like treasure hunting when he was first you know, a value investor. Not many people were doing it. Um, I mean, it, it, it relates to a comment that was made by Fred Kelly in his book in 930, uh, Why You Win or Lose. He basically said, your only chance to take money from Wall Street is to be somewhat unusual. And in Buffett's early years, he was unusual. It was easy for him. There weren't many people doing it. Um, I mean, even Ben Graham said this, and he died in 1976. That's nearly 50 years ago. He basically said, and this is an important point, Ben Graham said, what I wrote in security analysis back in uh, 1934 is not really much use anymore. So Ben Graham believed that the era of picking up cheap stocks easily, easily is over and Buffett thinks the same. Buffett will tell you that one of the reasons he's not winning like he used to is there are so many people doing it. Um, I mean, you look at the number of analysts who are practicing that technique. When, When Graham said that in 1976, you know, the day of the value investing is value investing is basically gone. Since then, since 1976, there's 200 times as many analysts. So the 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 problem has even magnified um, since Graham. Since Graham made that comment, now, as I said, in the last 15 years, Buffett hasn't outperformed. But but people, people don't think of this. They just look at it and they say, you know, since 1965, if you look at his annual geometric returns, it's, you know, 19.8% versus the S&P's 9.9. By the way, that's no small feat, I can tell you. No small feat. But you know how averages work, you know, and his performance has tapered right off. But there's people who... Who still reads security analysis and uh, the Intelligent Investor, which was released in 1949, and think it will give them an edge? I don't believe. And, and I've always been a great supporter of Buffett. I think he's a great man. I think a very intelligent man. He's a freak. But but what the characteristics that have made him that that define him as a freak aren't as useful today as they once were. He was he was
0: born at exactly the right time. Mm. Um, just to circle back from something to something, Plant One did send in some questions in advance, um, but one of the questions was um, when you invested overseas, how did you get the money back to Australia? I'm assuming you just used a brokerage account to buy those shares, and absolutely, I just I just use Yeah, yeah, it was yep. easy. Yeah, um, great. Uh, there, there, there's a they've chart got an link. international
1: trading desk. It's, it's so easy. It's, it's 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 almost as easy as
0: buying shares in Australia. Absolutely. Uh, there was a chart I was trying to find on Google as you we were talking through that. There's a chart, you know, the China, uh, the Chartered Financial Analyst Exam, that CFA exam. Yeah. Um, there is a chart, I think it was shared by, someone could find it on the internet for me and help us out, but um, there's a chart shared by um, a guy called Mike Batnick. I think it was Mike. Um, pretty good name. Uh, he said that, uh, he showed this chart of the number of CFA charter holders, the people that hold this really, you know, uh, Difficult title to have passed these exams, these financial exams, and a lot of it's based on like financial analysis and stuff. So, are you talking about
1: yeah. the New York based one?
0: Yes, yes. So, there's,
1: there's, the 190, there's about 190,000 members. Yeah, and, and, and interestingly, Graham, uh, sorry, Ben Graham started it off. And there were about principles. 20 members to start with. There's 190,000 now.
0: This Mike Batnick guy, he shows on a chart the number of US stocks on a chart to the number of CFHR charter holders. And what you can see is the number of these highly credentialed and highly skilled analysts, not investors, mm-hmm. but highly skilled mm-hmm. analysts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. per stock is just gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shows you that kind of the game has changed in that respect. Mm-hmm. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and like you said, if you're thinking that you're, competitive advantage in picking stocks is to do a better valuation or to do a better price to earnings ratio or something like that i feel like you're on a fool's errand yeah i feel like that's just something totally different so one of the things one of the chapters i think it's a chapter mike you could tell me if tell me if i'm wrong i think it's a chapter in the book or maybe it's just one of the subtitle uh within a chapter but it says great investors don't need to be champions and i think that's one of the things that we think about is that we think of like investing edges in like we think about being better and we think a lot of prominent speakers in financial and investment circles will say you've got to sharpen the edge you've got to sharpen the edge to be better to get better to continuously learn to do that and this title kind of throws that back at them and says well maybe not yeah
1: well i i like to say if you if you don't know what your edge is then you haven't got one and you're not going to get it from reading books i i i I really upset one person who bought my book because um, <laughs> they, they read it, they read it and thought in the distillation of reading a book in several hours, they were going to go out and beat the market. Well, my argument is the way you get you excel or not excel. The, the way you be a good investor is just don't do anything dumb. And it, it's amazing what compounding at market rates can achieve you. You can be a great investor um, just getting market returns. But if you start doing dumb things, then your returns are going to suffer. Um, there, are, there, are, there is still a way to get an edge out there, but I can't define it because I haven't got it. And the people who have got it, the Jim Simons of the world and the Quants, you know, you know Jim Simons, who's turned himself into multi-billionaire through, you know, quant trading. Um, his win rate is just a fraction over fifty percent, but he's so leveraged and he trades so often that he's been able to turn that into billions of dollars. Uh, he won't tell you what his what his edge is. You need, as Fred Kelly is, the quote I said before in 9 30, the only way you take money out of the market is to be somewhat unusual. You're not going to get it out of a popular selling book. <laughs> but I don't think it matters. I really don't think it matters. People underestimate the power of time, patience and compounding. They think that you're going to make money just by repeatedly picking winners and they'll come up cropper if they think that they'll so be the, wasting their time
0: so then if you think about it right so if you think about your book being the ulysses contract um ulysses has the mast and he asks the crew to time to the mast mm-hmm. so he could hear these alluring things the yeah. the trading signals the economists and he wakes up no, in the news no. has his cup in the morning has his cup of flicks on the tv and sees Dow Jones down this percent, some expert rolls in and says something yeah, or other. Yeah, yeah, But then he still gets to the end of his life, yeah. right? And he's he's fine. He's financially yeah. independent. He's got his farm, yeah. Yeah. you know. He's, got, he's retiring comfortably. He's doing the things that he should. Yeah. What goes into the mast, if you get what I mean? Like what are some of the principles that do help people move through life?
1: For me, it was knowledge. Knowledge. I, I – one one of the problems with human nature is that they believe narratives over facts. They love a good story, and I don't. I mean, I like a good story, but only fiction. I I I I think a lot of the things that are stated uh, by so-called experts are fictions. So I act on facts, and it was very easy for me to look at all these things like like market timing, etc., and. Uh, understand that they were fictions. So I think knowledge is the most powerful. I think patience, you need patience. Um, you've probably heard me say that um, uh, even that word patience uh, was in Joseph D. La Vega's book. You know, he said that great investors need patience. And I, you may have heard me say, but it's worth repeating because not everyone will, will have heard this who's listening, Um When I was in Omaha and I went there five times for the Berkshire AGM, I met Susie Buffett, uh, his oldest uh, daughter, his only daughter, by the way, uh, oldest child. And she was asked in the group I was um, uh, what characteristics define her father. And she said patience and integrity. She didn't even hesitate. Patience. Father's a very, very patient man. And I think if you can develop, <laughs> problem is we're sort of born with patience rather than, than uh, build on it. But I, I think patience is a really good mast, uh, because if you're a patient person, that's what good investors need. Impatience, impatience, is the destroyer of, of good investing.
0: Mm. And vale to Charlie Munger, um, who passed yeah. away this morning. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, overnight
0: absolutely wonderful, uh, educator and investor. Um, and you know, he, he, he talked a lot about that. Uh, And Mike's just said in the chat, you know, get a little bit wiser each and every day and compound your knowledge for sure. But he also would say things like the quote I was going to use for today's show is like, you know, avoid stupidity rather than trying to seek brilliance. And, um, one of the things that he kind of instilled upon Buffett was this idea of, Letting wonderful businesses or letting, let's zoom out a bit, letting wonderful investments compound. Don't interrupt them because they're very powerful, uh, he said. And um, I think like people, I I, I know you remark after it a little bit in the book about index funds, and I know Plant One's questions were a little bit about that today. Uh, The use of index funds.
1: um, broad-based,
0: Yeah, not just, not some fancy expensive things, but just diversified index funds you talked about that a little bit in your book how at first you were kind of i guess hesitant you were like what do you mean this thing isn't you know the index fund can you talk us through maybe the use case of an index fund and why people actually benefit from paying attention to those types of things and we're not looking for recommendations but just like i guess what people are trying to find is like the sensible long-term things that patience helps you build
1: People don't get index funds, particularly young males, <laughs> too much test, too much testosterone. You know, I'm going to beat the world. Why do I need an index fund? You know, why do I want average returns um, when I'm going to beat the market? It's, it's almost an insult to buy an index fund. Not just young,
0: not just young males, I might say, but probably all males might, to be honest with you.
1: But I mean, if if you think that way, go to the go to the S and P site and look at the SPIVA results, share price index versus active managers. You, you have to read it, um, because it basically states, and they've been researching this for twenty years now, and they've got results going back about fifteen years based on the performance of active fund managers versus the index, you know, the S&P 200 or the all awards or the S&P 300. Now, you'd expect professional fund managers to beat that. After all, they devote their life to it, their career to it. But they find that, and here's the key, it's after fees. After after fees, if you invest in active management versus a, a low-fee index fund, um, 80% of Active fund managers can't even beat the index. And now you might all say, well, beauty, that's told me something. I'm going to go out and invest just in the other 20% because they've beaten the index over the last, you know, 1, 5, 10, 15 years, whatever it is. Um, uh, but that's a waste of time because they've also undertaken sustain- sustainability studies, uh, as did John Bogle, Um the founder of vanguard he was doing this years ago um if you pick the winners on historical performance you won't you're extremely unlikely to find them uh in future outperformers so it's it's a game of luck (laughs) it's a game of luck it's you know it's a gaussian curve it's a normal distribution curve and the active fund managers will hate you hate me saying this but the evidence is there. Um, So, what can you do? Um, Accept market returns, unless you've got an edge. If you've got an edge, go for it. What is it? Tell me. Because, you know, Mm. I don't think many people have an edge. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I'd say that's why professional and private, many people do do worse than average. Um, And the average is pretty bloody good. So. Compounding
1: at 10% nominal or 7% real, which is what the stock market has historically delivered on an accumulation basis, is huge. Hmm. You know, if you start doing that when you're in your 20s, you're going to be a, and put in a decent amount of money, you're going to be a very wealthy person by the time you're 60. Now, that's not quick enough for most people, but I'm just calling out the cold reality on the road.
0: Um you spoke, and I think this is the thing. I think, I think what you're saying. You correct me, is um, some people can outperform. Oh yeah, the market and I'm they not can do that, that Yeah, um, but is it worth it when you can do so many other things? Like maybe you can invest that time into upskilling in your career, starting a business, um, mm-hmm. yep. investing in a property, uh, spending time with your family. You name it, right? Investing are, in your career, investing in your own ability is a great investment. Exactly. So, this like the reality is that you can use that latent time and that kind of that extra effort that you would have put over there and put it over here and measure the rewards. Um, oh, and
1: I think the only reason for you to get seriously involved in investing and devoting a lot of time to it. Is if you are genuinely passionate about it. Yeah,
0: agreed. It. If you're not,
1: you, you go and do something else.
0: Hmm. I agree, and I think that um, a lot of people um, can just invest in a simple, low-cost, diversified portfolio. Add to it regularly. Put the wax in their ears and add to it regularly. Um, and I'd say they'll be fine. And it's only like I, I heard. It was put to me by a guy called Curtis Larson who runs a small private investment company. It's just his own money and some family and friends and um, very simple in the way he goes about managing money. And he he said to me, you kind of need the time and the curiosity Mm -hmm. because if you don't, you can have the curiosity, but if you haven't got the time because you've got other priorities in your life, you're probably not going to be able to do enough. And if you've got the time but you don't have the curiosity, then the first thing that happens is you're going to be kicked off the horse and you're never going to get back onto it again. So don't even try in the first instance. Just let someone else mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so we did uh, have some questions uh, that were sent through. And w- one of the things we can't do is we just can't talk about individual stocks. We We could, but we don't necessarily going to get into that no. game. No. So um, one of the, the the questions is just broadly, like, how do you in- invest your wealth today? Right. You're a guy that's extremely well read, extremely credentialed in terms of your ability to do it but if you could just speak broadly mike maybe just like how you think about where you allocate money um if you're happy to
1: yeah sure uh, you know it's interesting time i'm going through a bit of a shift at the moment i i i've had i've owned a number of properties some of it commercial property and i'm selling it all i found it a pain um my, my, I've had a mind shift on commercial property. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, it's just I've, I'm less interested in it now than I used to be. So where am I putting my money? I, look, from about the age of my 20s till about 60, so for about a four-decade period, I was a stock picker. Um, and I've had, I've had some success doing that might have been luck. Um, I can't quantify it. There's there's the take. (laughs) I had my success or otherwise as a stock picker um, monitored during the time I was uh, an analyst at Barefoot. And if you look at our portfolio as a whole, um, we did quite well. Uh, So where do I put my money now? I'm extremely interested in the stock market. But I've discovered that I've lost the interest to investigate to the depth required every single company that I was investing in. And it's a full-time job, really is, for a concentrated portfolio. It, it, it demands 40 or 50 hours a week to do it. And even then, you mightn't do it well. So the answer to the question is the bulk of my money, and this is going to may not surprise you, is into low-cost index funds. Now, the yield from that uh, is multiples of amounts more than I need. (laughs) So I am sharing that money with my family in enjoying life, and I'm reinvesting a lot of it too. So it may sound a bit silly. I'm actually building my wealth at my age. But what else am I going to do with it? I've I've met my material needs, so why do I need to spend it for the sake of spending it? So a a big chunk, look, quantify the amount in index funds. I've never really worked out, but it must be approaching half my money.
0: Yeah, right. Um, And you do talk a little bit about that in the book, um, and we've spoken previously about, uh, on the podcast, about some of your investments that you've made into property and those types of things. Um, just a bit of uh, praise for you, Graham. In the chat, it said best book I have read on investing. A very sensible method. Just need patience. So there you go. Um, there you Some go. people get it. Some people yeah. get it. Well done, Graham. <laughs> yeah. Um, and PDB uh, says I'm reading Mike's book at the moment. So I hope. I'm glad to hear that PDB because uh, we've talked about it enough over the last few few weeks. Um, and I think the book in itself is. Just a, a wonderful guide for people to pick up. And I, I probably would say, I don't know who you had in mind when you wrote it, Mike, but I would say that it's, it's for someone that understands what the stock market is. Like you could pick it up as an absolute beginner too, but there's probably other books you'd want to accompany it with. Because I, I, there's this line, and I was trying to tell Rob from Selfworth last year, uh, last week, uh, yesterday, sorry. He and I caught up for lunch at a very nice dumpling place in Melbourne. Uh, hello, Rob. Hi, yeah, Rob. When I met me, Rob. Yeah. When, when I say very nice dumpling place, it was just a little bit overpriced, but it was pretty good in Melbourne on Burke Street. Um, but we were talking about uh, part of the book, and I think this goes to the core of why you wrote it, and I cannot remember the quote, Mike, so please forgive me. Um, the quote was something to the effect that it's almost more profound to educate someone on why their prior belief – May not actually be true, than it is to uh, give that person a new belief. So what I mean by that is Carl Ludwood Born. Yeah, what's the quote? He was a German writer, lived about two
1: hundred years ago, and he said, "Losing an illusion, losing an illusion, makes you wiser than finding a truth." Is that is that the quote? Yes, yeah, the one. Yeah, it's it, he didn't he wasn't talking about the stock market, but I think it's one of the most relevant. Quotes you can deliver on the stock market. Losing an illusion makes you wiser than finding a truth.
0: And this is the thing because a lot of people believe, believe, that's the key word here, a lot of people believe they can trade their way to freedom, financial Mm -hmm. freedom, I mean. Um, A lot of people believe that they can be an investor in individual stocks without any help or without committing the time. To, mm-hmm. to, to, to actually do the research. Mm-hmm. A lot of people believe that, you know, the stock market is like gambling when obviously it's not if you're a long-term investor. Um, a lot of people have these belief systems in place mm-hmm. and they've never once thought, well, that empirically that is just factually not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think this book That's why I think this book is perfect for someone who has a belief about what the stock market is and then can read it and go in and go, well, Mike just referenced a guy from 300 years ago or that lady from three decades ago who said the same thing that I'm thinking about right now and showed why that's not true.
1: But you know, Owen, this is human nature. You know what a lot of people do when their beliefs are challenged? They reject the truth. They They just say that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. I mean, a lot of people can't stand having their deep inner beliefs challenged. And I think the sign of an intelligent person is someone who hears something that opposes their view and just sits back and says, well, let me think about that. And that's what you have to do all the time. Um, I'll give you a perfect example about investing. Um, I was so in, in awe of Warren Buffett in, when I was in my, my 30s and 40s, that I just believed the way to wealth was value investing. Well, you've heard what I've said in this podcast. I don't believe that anymore. I believe what value investing does, if you're bothered, is to make you a relatively safe investor because you don't get caught up in all these crazy things like, you know, well, dot-com, et cetera. So that's great. I mean I, I wouldn't turn anyone away from value investing at all. But I don't think sitting down reading everything that's ever been written about Warren Buffett and every, you know, putting every pithy quote that he's ever said, stick it to your computer with a sticky note, I don't think that's going to get you there. So I I had my beliefs about him, and I have enormous respect for him, don't get me wrong. I had my beliefs about him and his own techniques challenged so I looked at the evidence and then in looking at the evidence I started to even doubt my own ability and I thought well I'm just going to become an index investor.
0: Have you read, it's only a recent book, Uh, have you read the book uh, Clear Thinking by Shane Parrish, the guy I was talking about earlier? No. I'll get you a copy of that book. Um, It's only a recent book, it's come, it was a New York Times bestseller uh, when Mm -hmm. it came out instantly. And in that, he basically says, and he reframes that kind of thing, which you're talking about, which is that people feel, people have an emotional reaction when they feel like someone's view of them is different to their own view of themselves. And if we come in and we say stock trading doesn't work, people think that that's us having an opinion on them. When really what we're just saying is, no, the the matter is right here. and We're on this side saying that we don't think this thing works. We don't identify with that thing. And it's no judgment against you if that's how you choose to spend your time. But empirically, many of these things don't work. They might work for some in extreme cases maybe. But I think that's kind of one of the takeaways I'm going to have from this discussion amongst many of the other discussions we've had. I can see a question's come through from Bella. Bella, is there a difference between an index fund and an ETF? There is a slight difference, but an index fund can be wrapped up inside an ETF. And that's why you kind of get an easy way to invest in an index fund if you do that. Um, Sid said, uh, if index funds are the best way to invest the majority, why not put extra into super and keep it really simple? And absolutely, Sid, we're not oh, here to give couldn't you- couldn't agree problem. more. Couldn't yeah. agree more, tax haven.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but, but within super, make sure that it's invested in the right assets because super is just a tax environment You've also got to have the right assets working for you within your super. See, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people who aren't, um, I guess, financially minded, um, and I get these sort of comments from a lot of my friends. They lump super as just super. They say, amorphous mass of money, and it's all the same. It's not all the same. You need to look under the hood and see how your super is invested. But look, I could only encourage people that you know. If is a saving an in investing environment, super is wonderful so far. Let's hope they stop fiddling around with, with it, which is far too much to ask, I'm sure. It's a bit of a honeypot for the government, isn't it?
0: Oh, it is. And that's why I would say is that if you are on the younger side of the spectrum, is to build wealth outside of super as well as inside of super. Mm. So there's this old, you know, the old false choice. But they can change tax laws in any environment. Oh, exactly. So <laughs> this is the way I think about it, Mike, is if you've got, if you're, 20, 30, 45, 50 maybe, and you're thinking, I'm just going to put all of it in super because on a spreadsheet that looks delightful. A politician brain isn't written in your spreadsheet. (laughs) Um, So it's just about, at least if you have some wealth outside of super, like in a property or in an ETF portfolio or something, whatever you do, at least then if they change the super rules, hopefully they haven't changed what's outside of super. If they change what's outside of super, hopefully they don't change what's inside super at the same Look, time. On,
1: on, the, on the positive side, in support of super, I'd be surprised if any politician was so stupid. Oh, God, I've just said the wrong thing, Even though They probably are. To make it less attractive than the alternatives, because they don't want everyone to go on the age pension. Oh, yeah. The whole it's- purpose of it with, you know, Paul Keating was to get wean people off the age pension. So they're always gonna to have to make it, no matter how much they screw super people in super, it's gotta be more attractive than not.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well the whole this is the I think this is a misunderstanding amongst people who get angry at politicians. And fair enough that we would do it. But the misunderstanding yes. is that they want us to be wealthier on average each and every year because it's good for them, politically speaking, and yeah. it's good for the entire country. so that they don't have to find creative myopic ways to try and solve a huge population moving into retirement with excessive healthcare spending. So Mm -hmm. it's in everyone's Mm -hmm. benefit for everyone to get slowly and surely wealthier. And I hope today's session, Mike, brings a bit of that, and I think it has to people that are watching. Um, Daniel, you did ask if this is recorded. Uh, This is recorded, so um, you can go back and watch it tonight, next week, over Christmas, um, but I would strongly suggest everyone if they haven't picked up a copy of Mike's book to go and do that. You can use the link that we just said. Um, I'll just bring it up again for folks yeah. that want it, which is this one here. I'll just drop it in the chat again and use the coupon code RASCXmas, I think it is. Yeah, RASCXmas. And that will get you 50% uh, off the book. So you will have to order within the next two weeks. If you, I think it's the next week if you want it by Christmas a wonderful book you can gift it to a friend who's in, interested in investing uh, the way i think about this these things mike is even if we gifted 10 of these and only two of them get read the two that get read are worth giving to those people because that's what changes people's lives so mm-hmm. um yeah that's probably one of the things uh, i would say rodney thank you for picking up on that question before um etfs you can buy and sell bella in your uh, brokerage account index funds you typically have to go to the provider's website so say for example a vanguard etf you can buy through self-wealth which i know this is being streamed through um or your brokerage platform whereas an index fund you typically have to fill in a little bit of paperwork or something like that but go and you can google the differences between those two and that mike does talk a bit about them in the in the book like all right we'll say good we'll say good day to you i'm gonna go and buy that book for you uh that can be my christmas present to you and i hope you enjoy it um, and uh in the meantime mate it's great to catch up and thank you for yeah, taking some time as to, usual to share a lot, with, right. share your knowledge with with the community of always ASA a pleasure Ratham to talk himself. to you cheers mate all right Thanks i'll a say lot. goodbye to you for today and uh, i'll speak to you soon okay see you everybody thank you